Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm your host today for New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. We're going to podcast today with Assistant Professor Simon J. Gilhooley. He's a uh, professor of American Studies and Political Studies at Bard College. Welcome, Professor Gilhooley, to the show. Thank you for having me, Ryan, uh, and thank you very much for the invitation. So, earlier this year, Professor Gilhooley published The Antebellum Origins of the Modern Constitution, Slavery and the Spirit of the American Founding. The publisher is Cambridge University Press. Before we dive into the interview prompts, I did want to uh, discuss a little bit about the image on the cover and uh, the process of selecting that image. Thank you. Yeah. So the the image on on the the front of the cover um, is an image of the U.S. Capitol um, with the words um, the home of the sorry the home of the oppressed uh, written above it Um, and in the foreground there's a a slave coffee passing by the the Capitol. Um, I I selected this image. It's it's a a detail from an anti-slavery pamphlet in the early 1830s, which is the approximate kind of period that the, the book covers. And what I really liked about the images is the contrast that they make um, between slavery at the foreground and, and the kind of the political institutions uh, at the background and the way in which the, the image and the, the pamphlet draws attention to both the existence of slavery in the nation's capital, but also the contrast between the ideological claims to be a nation of liberty and and the practices of slavery very much in the heart of of the politics of of the country at that time. So let's begin with the 1819 to 20 Missouri crisis. Can you provide examples of anti-slavery restrictionist citations to a broader meeting of the 1787 federal constitution, as well as depictions of constitutional compromises as deviations from the spirit of the Declaration of Independence? And what about pro-slavery anti-restrictionist spirit of conciliation and the temporal approaches promulgated by both sides? Thank you. Yes, so this idea of spirit is, is percolating around the debates over the admission of Missouri in really interesting and, and rich ways in um, 1819 to 21. So there's two sides to this debate, the anti-restrictionists, those who want to admit Missouri without any restriction on slavery, and the restrictionists that want to see restrictions placed on slavery in the, in the process of that admission. So on the side of the anti-restrictionists, there's an attempt to appeal to a spirit of compromise that they read into the Constitution. So, for example, Matthew Carey makes the claim in 1820 that the union of these states derived its existence from a spirit of compromise, that our present admirable constitution is built upon the basis of compromise, that its spirit has pervaded our whole legislation, and that nothing but an adherence to that original and vital spirit can preserve us from discord and disunion. So anti-restrictionist members of Congress kind of articulated a nostalgic regret for the loss of what they called the the great spirit of conciliation which produced the confederacy um and they kind of made this appeal to try and you know put on the back foot the the restrictionists that wanted to to put uh conditions on missouri's admission the response of the restrictionists was to um kind of 
in some ways, interestingly, accept those claims about the sanctity of compromises um, rather than reject the claim of a compromise with, with slavery at the, the beginning of the, the constitutional order in, in 1787 to 88. They embraced that argument, but they argued that actually the very fact of that compromise um, was a recognition or that you know there was give and take at that moment. There was a bargain struck and the, the limits of that bargain um, were always important and, and should be honored. So the restrictionists argued that the, the bargain struck in 1787, uh, in the words of, of Jonathan Roberts, a senator from Pennsylvania, that were made in, quote, the dark days of peril and calamity, was that, that that had been a narrow agreement, a narrow bargain, and it was confined to the states then existing. So what they kind of argued in response was that this compromise or this bargain was a deviation from a wider notion of an American spirit. And they, they tried in... in, in um, 1819, 1820, to locate that spirit in the Declaration of Independence. Um, so instead of seeking to kind of resolve the conflict over Missouri by sticking to this original constitutional compromise, they wanted to honor the kind of wider spirit or the truer spirit of the nation that had kind of been surrounded by and, and was um, the backdrop to that, that compromise made in 1787. So what was kind of interesting to me about this period and, and about those um, discussions was that you see spirit kind of circulating in different ways and being used by the actors in, in, in different ways to try and position their argument for or against conditions on admission. Um, and one thing you know that is kind of interesting and you picked up there in your question is what kind of made sense about those different invocations was a different sense of the, the kind of temporal position that the Missouri crisis was in vis-a-vis -vis the, the founding. Um, so on one hand, the anti-restrictionists those that wanted uh, Missouri brought in as a slave state, essentially, kind of argued that that compact or that compromise was one that was always present, but was always being remade every time a state was admitted into the Union. And that there was no real kind of chronological difference between the founding and a compact that was constantly being renewed. On the other hand, um, interestingly, the, the restrictionists kind of argued the opposite, that you know that period of the founding was, was in the past, it was a deviation, it was constrained to that moment. And um, how they understood the Missouri crisis to be one that was really marked by um, a later moment in time from the founding. And that there's a kind of teleology to the Declaration of Independence and the values that are, that are in there that should be kind of fulfilled and carried out in, in admitting Missouri without any kind of acceptance of slavery. So really looking forward to, to the kind of the argument that is developed in the book, we see in the Missouri crisis lots of different claims about spirit, about temporality, about the importance of the, the constitutional bargain struck in 1787, and they're kind of there and circulating. Um, but as I show in the book, or I argue in the book rather, that later on they um, they consolidate in important ways in, in kind of a, a basis of, of what I argue is, is the way we think about the U.S. Constitution today. So how did the change from a textual focus on the third paragraph of the Declaration to the second paragraph, which you'll address, how did this change fuel debates between free blacks and the American Colonization Society over national citizenship, especially in David Walker's 1829 appeal? So I think this switch to the, the, the second paragraph of the Declaration is, is an important one. Um, so... The idea that the Declaration takes on a, a deeper ideological meaning in the 1820s, as been noted by Pauline Mayer, amongst others, as you know, the notion that 
quote, all men are created equal, becomes more central to social and societal understandings of the Declaration. And there are certainly hints of this in the Missouri debates, as, as I've just kind of referred to. And before eight, the 1820s, this line of argument or this focus on that aspect of the Declaration is particularly significant within three black populations, discussions of citizenship and national identity. However, it really takes on a greater significance in that community's discussions once the American colonization society actively engages in undermining the possibility of black citizenship in the United States. So for listeners who are, who are maybe unfamiliar with it, the American colonization sorry, the American colonization society is an organization kind of dedicated to the transportation of free blacks to Africa. It emerges in the late 1810s, and it quickly grows uh, by the early 1830s to over 200 societies in the United States. It has some kind of pretensions to benevolence, um, but it quickly becomes apparent, uh, at least to the free black community, that the project is kind of predicated on a denial of black citizenship. That The idea is that transporting free blacks to Africa and this process of colonization will be a way of removing that population from the United States and, and addressing the the potential for there to be free black citizenship within the United States. Um, and the response of, of free black communities to this project is, is to kind of articulate a claim to American citizenship, one that they have been making since the, the founding of the Republic, but takes on a kind of greater urgency in the face of the American colonization society. Um, so Thomas Jennings, for example, would state that our claims are on America. It is the land that gave us birth. It is the land of our nativity. We know no other country. And that claim, um, or these uh, appeals for black citizenship, um, were circulating in, in this period in the eight, late 1820s. And, and one particular important note of that circulation is Freedom's Journal, which was uh, a black-owned and operated newspaper. Um, and within the circle surrounding Freedom's Journal, the declaration and its commitment to the idea that all men are created equal became a kind of touchstone for an ideologically substantive notion of citizenship. So the idea that to be an American is committed to be committed to a particular set of ideas. This is really kind of an important argument for, for these three black communities because it gives black Americans a basis for identifying themselves as Americans. But it also gave them a way of opposing the claims of the American Colonization Society and others that you know this idea of denying people's citizenship or all men's citizenship was what we might call in modern terms kind of un-American, cut against the ideological content of, of the of the nation. So as you suggested, David Walker and, and David Walker's appeal is a kind of important moment within this discussion. Um, David Walker himself is emerging out of, of these communities and these conversations. Um, and he quite directly kind of takes up this idea of, of the declaration and the notion of, of black citizenship with his, uh, you know, his admonishment in the appeal that white Americans should read their own declaration and see what it is they actually declared. Um, and to kind of call them back to, to the ideological content that they see written in the Declaration. That kind of connection between uh, Walker's appeal and the communities in, in which he's kind of talking and discussing and the kind of response that those communities put forward in, in the face of the, the American Colonization Society is really important, I think. Um, because it speaks in some ways to what I'm trying to do with the, the, the book as a whole, which is to really think about the ways in which um, ideological materials were present that gave rise to this particular idea of the Constitution uh, in the 1830s. And, and one really kind of vital site for this is the, the arguments that are being made within three black communities in, 
the, and the associated ideas of crafting an idea of national citizenship. And those ideas circulate, they become important, they become influential within the interracial immediate abolitionism of the early 1830s. Um, and so kind of Walker and, and the Freedom's Journal and those discussions um, are kind of an important building block of that later idea. So on that note, what about William Lloyd Garrison's 1832 thoughts on African colonization? And how did free blacks connect or misconnect the spirit of the Declaration to constitutional civil liberties? So we, we were just talking about the kind of the importance of free black communities to this story. And I think, as I said, one thing that I try and do in this book is to, to think about how ideas develop in a kind of political space and through exchange response to other groups and other political ideas. Um, what I try and focus on is what I call meso-level figures. So that's a concept that I borrow from Daniel Carpenter's work on administrative reform. So these are kind of mid-level figures who are positioned to popularize and circulate concepts and ideas, but also to adopt them and adapt them and give some sanction to different ideas. Um, so they're often these figures are involved in developing ideas or claims in response to political problems, uh, to move them into different areas, to collect them together and, and shape them in different ways. I think David Walker is one such figure in this story, and, and so is, is William Lloyd Garrison. Um, so Walker is, is a pivotal figure in that he's both representing that accumulating black tradition of pointing to the Declaration, um, but he's also a, a link between that tradition and the interracial immediate abolition in the early 1830s. So Garrison, you know, kind of emerges as this figure in the early 1830s, um, really draws on that in, in kind of setting up and, and giving shape to his own understanding of abolition. Um, and you can see this fairly directly in the fact that Garrison reprints the Walker's appeal within the first six months of, of the, the Liberator newspaper. Um, but he also does this through thoughts on African colonization in 1832. And I think this is a, an, a, another through thread in, into this abolitionist discourse in the 1830s that this text is, is, is two parts, you know, and one part is about Garrison's kind of articulation of opposition to the, the project of colonization. Um, but the second part, part two, is, is really just um, a collection of free black meanings opposed to the American colonization society. And so those discussions that are taking place in the early 1820s, the early 1830s, within those communities are very directly feeding into this text and, and basically consist of the second part of the text. Um, and it makes those connections that they're, they're making within those discussions between the Constitution and the Declaration. So in those resolutions, in those meetings, you see an expression of an attachment to the, this ideological content of the Declaration as a basis of citizenship. Um, and you see that kind of foregrounding of that connection to the Declaration is also having a kind of constitutional uh, content as well and linking to an understanding of constitutional civil liberties. So, for example, in, in one meeting in Nantucket, they offer this resolution that we hold this truth to be self-evident, that all men are born free and equal, that we are men and therefore ought to share as much protection and enjoy as many privileges under our federal government as any other class in the community. So the, in this quotation, what I'm kind of interested in is this direct quotation, or, sorry, direct link between the declaration and its ideological content and an understanding of the constitutional government and how it should arrange and how it should be kind of what should be its posture with regard to the free black population um and garrison and and the, the thoughts on Amer on african colonization are kind of one 
mo moment or one avenue through which those ideas are kind of drawn into that um, interracial immediate abolitionism. Can you provide textual and even riotous examples of early 1830s abolitionists waxing equivocal on the legacy of the American Revolution? And kind of an offshoot question. How did they reconcile the founding fathers in slavery and historical consciousness? So abolitionists, or at least white abolitionists in the 1830s, really faced the dilemma on this front. Um, they wanted to both you know, claim the American Revolution as their inheritance, and they uh, had to reconcile that wish with the fact that it hadn't actually resulted in the end of slavery. And indeed, in the early 1830s, it wasn't at all clear that it would result in the end of slavery. Um, so they had to believe that the founding fathers were kind of both role models for them, but also at the same time morally corrupted. And that led, you know, to, for abolitionists in this period, uh, uh, an unusual degree of ambivalence. And I think w one of my favorite anecdotes about this is a, is a debate that takes place in The Liberator and in, in other abolitionist papers over the summer of 1833. And it really it focuses on the question of whether or not The Liberator had denounced George Washington as a hypocrite, a thief, a kidnapper, etc., and that he is now in hell. Um, so Garrison denied that this was the, the position of the Liberator in, in July of 1833, but the accusation um, kind of continued to, to fester and, and boil over the summer, um, with the Vermont Chronicle suggesting that all it was actually doing in drawing that conclusion was applying the logic of abolitionist arguments to the case of Washington. Um, and this kind of, the debate around this and then the responses to it, I think, highlights this kind of dilemma that you're talking about how, how do they both hold on to the legacy of the american revolution which they're kind of attached to um but also at the same time make sense of that in their kind of their critical posture to the practice of slavery um in the united states and they, they end up being a very um very am ambiguous and unusually ambiguous i think in in the response to washington um actually the liberator tries to resolve this eventually with an editorial in which they state that we think of Washington as a slaveholder. We say then that he is guilty of violating the command, thou shall not steal. In other words, he was guilty of man-stealing. Then, but then they continue. I mean, if we mean to be understood that saying Washington was a thief, we reply no, not in the common acceptance of that word. I mean, which really is a very nuanced and I think finessed kind of very political answer to that accusation. And not one I think we often associate with, with abolitionism in this period. Um, and, and so they kind of fumbled their way out of this, I think, um, not with any kind of grand strategy, but they looked to the Declaration of Independence and its commitment to equality as, as a way of trying to find an alternative understanding of the founding or the American Revolution to which they can lay claim. Um, and so this attachment to the Declaration becomes kind of symbolically important. Um, so the National Anti-Slavery Society meets in Philadelphia in 1833 to kind of construct itself. And in doing so, it offers its own declaration, which in itself draws a, a line between 1776 and 1833. Um, and they really try to um, place emphasis on the declaration, on, on ideas of equality, of this kind of ideological content of, the, of that second paragraph in trying to navigate that dilemma that they face. Can you provide examples of the early abolitionist argument that the federal constitution that quote-unquote villainous compact, <laughs> love that quote, required amendments to bring it into line with the Declaration. And how did the idea of disunion play a role? So that ambiguity uh, about how to engage the legacy of the founding is really manifest, I think, 
uh, in important ways in the abolitionists' relationship with the Constitution in the early 1830s. So on one hand, they, they understand the Constitution to be the thing that has bound them to slavery, um, both through the clauses that kind of directly sanction slavery, but also through clauses um, such as the Fugitive Slaves Clause, but also the, the national power to call out militias, which they understand to bind them to be a system in the perpetuation of slavery. So returning fugitive slaves or potentially being called out to repress a slave rebellion, they see as kind of connections through the constitution that, that bind them personally uh, to, to slavery um, and allow them to kind of be impl implicated in, in, the, in that practice as well. On the other hand, though, they also see the constitution as the thing that, that protects their freedom of speech and so their capacity to criticize slavery. Um, and so into this tension, they kind of pour a lot of the thinking that we've previously discussed. They, they try to link the Declaration to the Constitution and then to read the latter through the former. Um, so they kind of follow, in, in many regards, those three black meanings of the late 1820s and early 1830s. But this only really works if you're kind of willing to heavily discount the notion that the Constitution is actually a, 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 sorry, a compact over slavery. Um, and... and Garrison famously eventually comes to reject the Constitution on that basis and, and argues for disunion. So there is this uh, debate that's taking place in the early 1830s about whether disunion is, is kind of the response that it needs to be taken, given the, the Constitution's association with slavery. But there are abolitionists who, who aren't willing to take that step. Um, so Charles Denison is, is one example of this. And how does he kind of understand it? He, he kind of creates this understanding or this perspective on the founding as, as being a struggle between the darkness of slavery and the redeeming spirit of liberty. Um, so we see these kind of invocations of spirit again in this moment, but we see it also as a kind of struggle between these two sides and that maybe slavery has got the upper hand, but there's the potential for redemption by returning to that you know, co-present um, or co-excent uh, spirit that was there at the beginning. Um, and you can see uh, John Whittinger makes a similar claim. You know, he asks, what is our duty? And he answers himself to give effect to the spirit of our constitution, to plant ourselves in the great nation, to declare in the face of the world political, political religious, legal hypocrisy, shall no longer be no longer cover as the, the loathsome leprosy of the features of American freedom. Sorry, I kind of garbled that quote. But uh, I think the important part is the first part, which is the the return in this claim to the declaration as being the spirit of the constitution, trying to kind of read those two texts and these kind of two, um, as they understand them, competing spirits to, to both be important aspects of the founding and, and to kind of, in some ways, I think to write into that understanding of the founding, the dilemma that they're trying to navigate um, themselves in the 1830s. How did 1831 to 1832 anti-slavery challenges to Virginia state positive law induce pro-slavery rejoinders on, for example, comp compensated property and slaves, that state status compact argument, knowledge gained from po positive good experience, the depersonification of slaves, and if you can, address free blacks as political agents. And if you can also include the Randolph plan and Nathaniel Tucker's contentions, I think that would be edifying for our listeners. The debates in Virginia in, in 1831 to 1832 are important for this story as one representation of, of what I call in the book the constitutionalization of slavery. There are two aspects to this. The first which is evident in those debates is a turn towards constitutional arguments as responses to arguments about slavery as, as positive law. 
in the early republic, uh, a common way of thinking about the legality of slavery was to follow um, the Somerset decision from England. And, and that decision, uh, made in England in the 1770s, had ruled that slavery only legally existed in territories where it was supported by positive law. A ruling that undermined slavery in England, but actually didn't really significantly affect it in Virginia, where that kind of positive law did exist. But what was kind of important for the Virginia debates was that that logic of that position did allow for the possibility that where you took away that positive law support for slavery, or whether you reformed it, you could, the result would be that maybe slavery would cease to exist legally, or it would be altered in its legal existence um, in significant ways. That possibility and that that way of thinking um, had led politicians in the Virginia Assembly um, to call for gradual emancipation or reform of, of slavery in the aftermath of, of Nate Turner's insurrection in, in 1831. And the response to these pressures amongst pro-slavery individuals such as uh, William Rowan was to kind of assert their absolute vested and indefensible right of property in enslaved persons. Um, so they kind of, they had a very, kind of very strong um, empathetic response to that call for, for gradual emancipation. Um, what One of those and was the the Randolph plan that you alluded to in the, in the question. I mean, the Randolph plan itself is you know a very tepid, very long term um, plan for for gradual emancipation in Virginia. It really wouldn't have had any kind of effect for many years, and then it would have only had effect for enslaved persons when they reached reached their majority. So it was by no means a kind of radical or, or urgent plan for emancipation, but nonetheless, it it it, re, it was responded to kind of very vigorously. And those those groups opposing it um, and wanting to defend slavery, they could kind of they saw in the, in the, in this response and the, the the claims around positive law that you know positive law was no longer maybe as secure a response um, or a secure basis for protecting the legality of slavery as as it might have been in the past, and so they were looking also to ground that property right that they defended into something more secure, um, and they looked to kind of move the register of this debate to constitutional rights rather than positive law. And in doing this, they were kind of they were tapping into a, a trend towards viewing um, existing constitutions and practices as as necessarily kind of the best political sediments and, and bulwarks against destabilizing ideas about abstraction um, or or rights generally or universalism. Um, so they they linked in this process the kind of the preservation of slavery to the maintenance of the constitutional order, especially in the face of what they saw as a an agrarianism associated with the the wage labor nexus um and that's the other notion that i kind of want to identify or capture in the process of constitutionalization which is a greater sense of attachment or maybe kind of a romantic sense of attachment to existing constitutions and an understanding of slavery especially in the south as being a constituent part of those constitutionals constitutional orders sorry and so these arguments kind of reinforced each other and they made making defenses of constitutions more urgent and existing constitutions, um, but also making defenses of, of slavery elements of kind of upholding those constitutions. Um, and Nathaniel Beverly Tucker is, is actually a kind of a, a prime example of this and, and this transition in many ways, because in 1819, he's furiously writing about protecting self-government and individual rights in the pursuit of defending slavery um, or or allowing slavery to be uh, practiced legally in Missouri. But by the end of the 1830s, he's kind of moved to, into that much more kind of empirical, um, 
Burkean almost sense of defending slavery as part of the constitution against the threat of universalism, against the threat of abstractionism. I mean, he's writing in Virginia, um, expressing concerns over democracy um, and the individual um, to the same kind of ends of protecting slavery. So that constitutionalization is, is kind of both of those elements and, and Virginia and the Virginia debates are an important site for that um, or example of that that's to, the, that sets up these debates around slavery's constitutionalism that we see in the 1830s. How did anti-abolitionists entwine their compact theory with a spirit of compromise embodied by the federal constitution rather than pursue textual understandings? And can you provide examples if possible? The notion of the constitution as representing a compact between states had a fairly long pedigree by the the mid-antebellum period. Um, We could see it in the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions. There was some evidence of it there in the Missouri crisis debates, and it had been a foil for Chief Justice Marshall's decision in McCulloch versus Maryland. And the, the basic claim here was that the union was a compact of distinct political entities who had come together but held their independent identities for particular purposes. And one of these, an important one of these, was the regulation of slavery. And it was linked to this idea of the, the federal consensus, that the federal government could not interfere with uh, regulation of slavery in the states. At the same time, there was also a tradition of valorizing compromise in defense of the union. Um, so Peter Kofner has shown how this came to be part of an understanding of national state, statesmanship Sorry, during this period. And one way of seeing the relationship between these two trends is to see that compromise, that spirit of compromise um, coming to be seen as vital to the maintenance of the federal compact. My argument, though, is that increasingly the view was that the spirit of compromise had, in fact, made the compact itself possible in the first instance. And it was this kind of originally spirit or originary spirit of compromise that um, came to be understood as the spirit that animated the Constitution. And that that, that spirit and that kind of um, kind of contextual kind of pre-environment to the constitution was itself binding on future generations and this really comes out i think in the debates over slavery in the district of columbia where the textual grounds for opposing abolition are weak and we'll maybe talk about that in a moment and um, so there in, the, in that debate we see these kind of claims about the importance of a spirit of compromise and the kind of the the hold of a, a spirit of compromise on on future political actors much more pronounced so for example richard manning says there can be no interference with slavery in D.C. as under these compromises in reference to the property of the slaveholding states, the Constitution of the United States was adopted. Under these, as their proper basis, rest the Constitution and government. These then, under legitimate deductions of reason, are the spirit and life of the Constitution and government. Um, and Felix Grundy uh, similarly kind of viewed the creation of the federal government um, as kind of involved or grounded on the belief that the federal government would not interfere with the subject of slavery in the district um, and that the faith of government should be preserved as sacredly as the constitution. So that this kind of the spirit, the compromise, the kind of attitudes that kind of surround the constitution are themselves part of the constitution and, and binding in the same way that the constitution is. After the 1833 abolition of chattel slavery in certain parts of the British Empire, how did the District of Columbia come to signify the Americanization of the paradox of freedom and slavery? In addition, why did opponents of slavery in the district begin to conceive of their movement as mass mobilization premised on constitutional duty and petitions, while anti-abolitionists envisioned a post-abolition district as a thermopylae of war between the states? 
the relatively small size of the District of Columbia has meant it has played kind of second fiddle to the Western territories in considering the federal government's relations with slavery. But its symbolic importance for both abolitionists and anti-abolitionists, I don't think should be understated, especially in this, this period in the, in the 1830s. Um, the District of Columbia represented a territory in which the federal government had a direct and in the view of, of abolitionists kind of enduring responsibility for slavery. Um, you know, there, it was the kind of important territory for, for slaves. Um, you know, there were approximately six, six, between four and 6,000 um, enslaved persons held in the district. But it was also kind of very symbolically important um, and, and the kind of the connections that it made between different citizens of the United States to slavery were really kind of what the abolitionists were attuned to. Um, and one of these, for example, was the, the role of the, the jails in the District of Columbia, um, which were implicated in the business of slavery through both their kind of holding of enslaved persons, um, but also perhaps even involved in the enslaving of, of people um, in response to unpaid um, jail fields, jail, jail Sorry, jail fees. Um, and so for the abolitionists, this really implicated the federal government directly in, in the practices of slavery. And because the federal government represented everyone in the nation, it implicated them in the practices of slavery. Um, at the same time, it, the District of Columbia became economically important in, in new ways in the, for slavery, sorry, in the, the middle of the, the antebellum period. So as the economic structures of slavery altered, um, there was enslaved persons being forcibly migrated from the mid-Atlantic and the upper south to the southwest. And the District of Columbia, and in particular within the District of Columbia, the, the Port of Alexandria, were significant hubs within this process. Um, so slaves were kind of being moved through this territory. This territory was you know, a site of the, um, the process of, of buying and selling of slaves and, and forcibly moving slaves. On the other side, for the, the anti-abolitionists, the District of Columbia also represented a territory that was surrounded by slave states um, in, in, in the form of Virginia and Maryland. And their fear, one of their fears, uh, was that if you created this uh, kind of free space within the middle of these slave states, it would become uh, an oasis for, for runaway slaves. And that kind of concern um, it was borne out in 1862 when, during the Civil War, they did end the practice of slavery in the district. And, and what did happen was runaway slaves uh, kind of ran to freedom. Uh, towards the district. Um, the anti-abolitionists also feared that, you know, abolishing slavery in the District of Columbia would give kind of federal imprature to the, the arguments of the abolitionists and again give them law and legitimacy. It would be kind of stepping stone to a, a broader abolitionist project. So for both sides, you know, the, the question of abolition in the district is becoming more um, important, more symbolically important. Um, and so for the abolitionists in particular, um, the focus on, on the District of Columbia has kind of emerged from very early on. It's gaining traction into the 1830s. The Liberator, for example, republished a petition on this issue on its front page. But 1833 is also a kind of significant moment, even within this kind of heightened significance for the, the district, in that the symbolic rejection of slavery in the, in the British Empire, um, although it itself didn't have kind of an immediate effect, um, kind of undermined and pulled the rug away from the abolitionist idea that the American Revolution had, you know, given the United States a kind of unique claim to being a space of liberty and on the path to emancipation. If 
the British monarchy could beat them to it, then then what did that say about the United States as, as kind of a self-proclaimed asylum for mankind? And so um, there's a turn from here that I talk about within the book in, in terms of the uh, conceptualization of the Americanization of slavery, to start to think that slavery in the United States is a kind of particular form of slavery, a particular form of evil that is um, found in the, in the nation and for which the nation is responsible. And you see arguments, for example, like the New York anti-slavery societies claim that the slaveholding United States is the headquarters of cruelty in the world. Um, and so once that Americanization kind of is in play, then the district as the capital of that nation becomes even more kind of symbolically important and they kind of feed on and, and reaffirm one another. And so taking a position against slavery in the district, acting against slavery in the district has got to be a kind of way of witnessing or standing against your own implication in, in a national crime of slavery. Um, as the, the Grimke sisters noted, slavery was one avenue for definite practical action. And so I think the kind of, as well as the organization and the attention to the district, the, these different considerations are reinforcing each other to produce this kind of um, mass mobilization and mass petition campaigning. For three subgroups in the 1836 House of Representatives, what was the significance of the Pinckney Resolution to form a committee on tabling anti-slavery petitions, particularly for anti-abolitionist constitutionalism and the report's prioritizing of a compact and sacred compromises over a textual reading of the federal constitution? And if you can, uh, address the debate in the Senate as well. The situation that emerges in the 24th Congress um, follows on from that kind of heightened attention to the District of Columbia and the view of, of moral implication in, in slavery that, that we just kind of talked about. Um, the result is that there's a kind of a flood of petitions to, to Congress um, and the, the kind of congressional response to this comes to a head in, in late uh, 1835, at least in the House of Representatives. So. I mean, these, these are not the first time that Congress has had to deal with petitions concerning slavery or even petitions concerning slavery in the District of Columbia. And so they, they have a kind of practice for dealing with this in the House. That practice um, involves um, referring these um, petitions to the Committee on the District of Columbia, where they kind of just go and die, basically, and there's no further action is taken on them. What happens in late 1835 is that James Hammond of South Carolina interrupts this usual process and demands a kind of overt rejection of these petitions. And in doing so, he opens up a debate about what they should do with petitions. Um, and when that kind of becomes a debate about, in some ways, the constitutionality of, of slavery in the district, um, because it becomes tied up in the question of, of whether you know, these petitions and their crests are, are constitutional in themselves. Um, this starts to have consequences for the operations and workings of, of Congress, that uh, they set aside a day each week for petitions because they don't know how to process or respond to these abolitionist petitions. They are presented and then they debate what to do and it, it, it kind of makes them unable to get to any other petitions. And so uh, there's a kind of a logjam creating around the petition process because of this. It's that logjam is broken in February in the House of Representatives when um, Pinckney offers a, resolu a resolution that the petition should be directed to a sec select committee um, under his chairmanship and that that committee will commit to reporting out um, on these petitions that interference with slavery in the District of Columbia would be a violation of the public faith. So kind of, you know, send the petitions to me, I'll deal with them, um, and you can be sure that my committee is going to draw a conclusion that's kind of acceptable to you. That kind of 
it ends up being how they respond to their logjam. But it also, the kind of the votes about the resolution and the responses to the proposal in February and then the final report in May allow us a kind of access to see, to some extent, what, what are the groupings in, in Congress around this issue. So about a fifth of the members of the House of Representatives take the position or indicate the position through some of these votes that their their view is that the that Congress um, should not kind of disclaim its ability to interfere with slavery. So in the District of Columbia, sorry. So it's not necessarily that they're, they're abolitionists. In fact, there's not really any abolitionists in the House of Representatives at this time. There's you know, people who are not willing to forego the claim that Congress could act in the district if it wanted to. At the other end, there's about a fifth of the, the House that want to see a stronger rejection of congressional authority over slavery than is being offered by um, Pigney. And then in the middle of those, there's uh, about three-fifths of the House whose position is basically that they want to kind of repress this discussion and, and take it off the table and are happy for Pigney to do that. Um, they want to set aside the question of whether Congress should act on slavery in the District of Columbia, but without having to kind of take the position that it would be unconstitutional for Congress to do so. And so Pigney's report offers them a way to do that. And it's significant in its a moment, uh, kind of we'll talk about a little bit, I think about the 1836 election, it's a moment in which this kind of idea of, of a spirit of compromise or something beyond the text itself can be kind of binding and holding on, on actors. Um, what's interesting in terms of the Senate is it actually follows a very similar trajectory to the debate in the House of Representatives, although there's no uh, select committee in that instance. They instead develop a kind of modus operandi of tabling petitions and, and not coming back to them. But that is, again, a kind of response to a, a, a logjam or a, a heightened debate that emerges in early 1836 in that case around this issue. So the debates are taking place in both houses simultaneously, and they, they basically follow the same pattern, although they, they end up with slightly different procedural responses. During the 24th Congress, why did abolitionists pursue a textual reading of the federal constitution? Informed by commitments to ideas in the Declaration in an attempt to abolish chattel slavery in the District of Columbia. The attraction of a textual reading for abolitionists was twofold. Um, on one hand, it was, it was textually pretty clear that Congress could claim authority over slavery in the District of Columbia. This had been kind of widely assumed in congressional debates going back to the 1810s. Um, and the House Committee on the District itself had kind of issued two reports, uh, one in 1829 and one in 1832, that had, um, in the first instance, very come very close to taking that position. And in um, 1832, had seemed to implicitly concede that position by saying that it wasn't the right time to act. Um, so there was kind of, this didn't seem that, that controversial necessarily a claim. It, it was only as abolitionist pressure kind of increased um, on slavery in the district and and the economic significance of slavery in the district kind of increased that we see a kind of emergence of a consistent line against that position. Um, the advantage of, of saying that Congress had control over slavery in the district constitutionally for abolitionists was that it also avoided uh, a direct confrontation with the, the arguments around the idea of the federal consensus. They could say that, you know, if everyone agreed that within a given territory, the state 
authorities had the kind of ultimate say of the regulation of slavery, then they could say the equivalent authority in the territory of the District of Columbia should have the same power. And, and that was Congress. So you could kind of turn that federal consensus back on itself to make an argument for why Congress should act on slavery in the District of Columbia. The second, I think, attraction for a, a textualist argument for abolitionists at this point was that um, you could make a rhetorical appeal on the basis of that, that textual authority. You know, you could be claiming, as they did, to merely be reading the text and that um, they were making simple and honest arguments that would be persuasive to anyone who read the text themselves. And it really kind of chimes with the essentially democratic mode of argumentation that we see in this period of Jacksonian America. Um, it also allowed them, in the same way, to put their opponents kind of on the back foot by kind of asking why they didn't just want to meet this debate on the grounds of, of, of the text. You know, why were they so reluctant to just have a kind of simple, honest interpretation of, of the text before them? So I think the, there was really strong reasons to stick to a kind of textual argument at that moment, and there was really no kind of attraction for the abolitionists and anti-slavery advocates to go beyond that. In, in this debate. So uh, a kind of textual argument was, was ideal for them in that moment. During the electoral campaigns of 1836, what were the consequences to Martin Van Buren's invocation of the 1787 spirit of compromise and Stasis compact and the evolving positions on abolition in the District of Columbia? And why did Van Buren Northern Democrats seem to coherently invoke that spirit more than Southerners? Maybe you can really briefly address William Leggett as well. That would be uh, edifying for our listeners. So these kind of there's two debates kind of simultaneously going on, and they're, they're not really wholly distinct. Um, there's this debate in Congress about the petitions. At the same time, there's a debate taking place within the the build up to the 1836 election or over the course of the 1836 election um, regarding Van Buren. And certainly, people in Congress uh, and commentators suspected that maybe you know these two um, discussions were not completely uh, exclusive and that. Maybe the, the crisis in Congress has been cooked up to help Van Buren or hurt Van Buren, depending on, on where you stood on, on him as a candidate. Um, uh, either way, uh, the, the question of slavery and the question of slavery in the District of Columbia became an important one for Van Buren in the course of the 1836 election. So he faced kind of a challenging political terrain in, in that year, uh, even though he did eventually win, um, in that he was really trying to, reconstruct and replicate Andrew Jackson's cross-sectional coalition that kind of brought Southern Democrats and Northern Democrats together in, in the same political coalition. Um, in 1836, he was really fighting two elections, one in the South and one in the North. So in the South, he was facing off against um, Hugh Lawson White and in the North Harrison. And Hugh Lawson White was kind of being offered by um, Van Buren's opponents in the South as as kind of safe for the South and safe on the issue of slavery because he was a Southerner. Uh, he was, as one newspaper, a slaveholder himself, a citizen of a slaveholding state, and therefore necessarily identified with us and with all the South upon that vital and absorbing subject. And of course, the implication here is that Van Buren as a Northerner was not and was not a safe pair of hands on this issue. The other side of that is that Van Buren is also not wanting to take too strong of a position, overt position rather, on slavery at the risk of alienating members of his democratic coalition in the North. Um, so figures such as William Leggett, um, who, you know, in his, you know, the the Evening Post in New York is, you know, running endorsements of Van Buren beneath poems suggesting that when feathered slave is loosed, 
we shall truly be free. Um, that there is kind of this assumption or mis misunderstanding that Van Buren is kind of productively encouraging that he's not as pro-slavery as, as as some people might be for the purposes of a northern audience. So what I show in the book is the manner in which Van Buren's position on the issue of abolition in the District of Columbia evolves over the course of his campaign in a kind of attempt to thread the needle of these these disparate pressures. So he starts kind of in early 1835 in a position that it would be impolitic to interfere with slavery in the district. Um, but then he's kind of pushed on this, and by late 1835, he, he seems to endorse um, the view that any, kind of any interference with slavery uh, would, quote, violate the spirit of compromise which lies at the basis of the federal compact. Um, so invoking that kind of spirit of compromise as being kind of a fundamental consideration. He's pressured on it again. By 1836, we see another evolution. This time he's against the propriety of interference in the District of Columbia. Uh, but he also uses that occasion, and I think this is illustrative, to say that he, he doesn't think it would be unconstitutional to act against slavery in the District of Columbia. But there are considerations, quote, as imperative as a textual prohibition, and that w one of those would be that it would violate the spirit of that compromise of interests, which lies at the basis of our social compact. And that evolution, that evolution around this question of spirit and its, its the imperative obligation of it, culminates, I think, in his inaugural address where he says he, you know, is bound to kind of actually veto attempts to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia due to his obligation to quote the spirit that actuated the venerated fathers of the Republic. Um, so what we see and what I trace in the book is that Van Buren is kind of responding in these. Uh, political ways to a pressure over the, the issue of district of slavery in Colombia. And as he's doing so, he's kind of um, adopting and um, extending and then evolving that idea that there's a spirit that kind of exists as a precursor or a, um, maybe a, a prenumera to the, the constitution that has obligations um, that may supersede the text, that may be more fundamental in some ways than the text. Um, why um, William Leggett is an interesting character in this story, I think, is because I think he is one of the earliest um, critics of Van Buren's position on the District of Columbia and slavery to appreciate what the kind of the theoretical consequences are of the positions that Van Buren is developing. Um, Leggett himself goes through this quite quite remarkable conversion in September of 1835, um, where he, in a little over a week, he kind of, through a series of articles, thinks through the consequences of invoking a spirit of compromise as a curb on abolition. And he initially starts quite kind of supportive of that idea. Um, but as he thinks through it, he kind of re reflects that the notion of a constitutional spirit divorced from a text really has dangers for free speech and dangers for three fourth. Um, so when we get to Van Buren's inaugural address, I th Leggett is really primed, I think, to appreciate the, the significance of what Van Buren is doing and picks up on it very quickly. Um, and he he sees that this kind of invocation of a spirit that actuated, actuated the fathers divorced from a text um, really is going to end the notion of uh, strict construction of the Constitution and, to quote, to steer by the uncertain light of the spirit. Um, so the result... Leggett feels will, will be tossed about on a sea of vague conjecture and left to the mercy of winds and waves. So he sees that 
this moment and the kind of consequences of this moment are resulting in a new way of thinking about the constitution in which spirit is kind of holding and, and powerful. And he really sees or anticipates that that is going to be dangerous and problematic going forward. So for the end of your book, how did mid-1830s abolitionists reconceive of this spirit as a historically specific intent to abolish chattel slavery in the founding generation? And what three strands of abolitionist constitutional thought resulted from anticipation of the publication of James Madison's notes? Also, which strand became the most important for anti-slavery platforms and pro-slavery jurisprudence on the eve of the U.S. Civil War? Generally, the reactions to this idea of a spirit actuating the Constitution are not as critical as Leggett's. I think Leggett, what's really interesting about Leggett is he picks up on the stakes of this very early on. Um, one abolitionist response is, is actually to kind of accept the basic premise, um, but to try and substitute in an, an anti-slavery founding spirit for the, the one that Van Buren is, is articulating. And so you can see this in different ways. For example, the, the Rhode Island abolitionists, um, f- you know, they understand it to be an attempt to regrain the ground on which liberty occupied in 1787. Um, and one facet of this, I think, which is kind of interesting, is that there are different efforts to generate an anti-slavery and sorry, an anti-slavery pantheon of the founders. Um, so figures like Washington and Jefferson are, are kind of demoted, and, and figures like Jay and Franklin and Rush are pushed to the fore um, on the basis of their uh, perceived anti-slavery credentials. Um, and this is kind of supported and augmented by an argument. That, that points to the lack of the word slave or slavery within the constitutional text to try and kind of argue that there, there is a, a spirit at the founding and that spirit which informs the constitution is an anti-slavery spirit. And that's the one that kind of should be holding. Um, the publication of James Madison's notes are important for that story because they kind of they explode the credibility of that position. Um, Reverend Samuel J. May, for instance, who is one of those abolitionists who's kind of on board with that project of, of advocating for an anti-slavery spirit, you know, before Madison's notes, looks forward to them, thinks they're going to be vindicated by those notes. They're going to be able to like point to a historical record that shows the anti-slavery uh, credentials of the founders. But then, you know, that's not what the notes show. Uh, they show the very opposite. And, and May himself reflects later on, it becomes very hard for him to maintain the positions um, that he did in, in abolitionist debates once those notes are, are published and kind of in circulation. Um, the response to the notes and the response to that like increased understanding of what, of what actually took place in Philadelphia results in kind of three distinct anti-slavery postures towards the Constitution. It's, it's the argument that I make in, in the book. One of those is a, a Garrisonian rejection of the Constitution. So a kind of idea that the Constitution and its spirit are pro-slavery, that it was a bargain over slavery, that therefore, you know, it's kind of um, irredeemable and the best thing to do is just kind of break away from it and, and have nothing to do with it. Uh, a second response is exemplified by William, William Goodall, um, and that's to kind of just try and maintain that the founding spirit was anti-slavery uh, despite the revelations around the, the Constitution's creation. And in Goodall's case, this is achieved by kind of widening the scope of the relevant spirit to be something broader that, that doesn't focus just on, on, on Philadelphia. Um, so he talks about the um, spirit of the age as being kind of the founding spirit. And then that is kind of argued to be very much in favor of liberty associated with 1776 and linked to the Declaration of, of Independence. 
The third posture, and the one that gains most political traction, I think, is is the, the argument that while there is an anti-slavery spirit at the founding, it's kind of constantly and effectively under siege from a countervailing pro-slavery spirit. And this becomes linked to the arguments around um, slave power, that there's a kind of corruption of American institutions taking place um, that are you know, suffocating this spirit of liberty that was there at the beginning and which needs to be rekindled and recaptured um, through a kind of new constitutional sense or new response to slavery. What I think is worth pointing out here is that none of these positions really follow Leggett in rejecting the notion of an independent constitutional spirit per se. The debate really shifts in the aftermath of this moment to to what that spirit is, what that spirit should be, what should be done about that spirit. Um, and this is really kind of a, a crucial point for the book as a whole, that there aren't really many significant voices left after that who are arguing that the text alone is authoritative. Um, one important exception is, is Lysander Spooner. Um, and later on, at a later stage, Frederick Douglass, to some extent, moves towards that position. But for the most part, the debate becomes kind of encapsulated within this question of what the spirit of the Constitution is and how we should respond to, the, to that spirit. Thinking about the, the, the defenders of slavery, kind of the kind of the abolition of their territory in, in terms of terms of the spirit of the Constitution forces, forces them to kind of shore up their arguments and kind of develop their own conception of, of the founding spirit a little bit. And so what we see in the, in the aftermath of, of that res abolitionist response is um, kind of move towards on the, the part of defenders of slavery, thinking about the recognition of slavery at the moment of founding as important evidence of the compatibility of it to the founding, sorry, the constitutional order. So the the notion of a spirit here becomes kind of more associated with attitudes, understandings, um, recognition, and recognition itself, which had been about in the Missouri Compromise, sorry, the Missouri Crisis, takes a more central role in, in these later arguments. And this is really where, where the book kind of leaves off. Um, and it, it follows this, these ideas and this question about the spirit of the Constitution and its, sorry, its incarnation as a kind of form of recognition from these kind of publicly situated um, debates from these meso-level actors and into their kind of um, distillation in some ways into constitutional law through the cases of Prigg versus Pennsylvania and then Dred Scott. And in the latter case in particular, I think we get this kind of final evolution of a notion of an animating spirit. So um, in that case, Chief Justice Taney kind of positions himself as trying to replicate the thoughts and intentions of the framers in 1787 and to write those attitudes into constitutional sorry, jurisprudence um, and with the disastrous cases or disastrous results that emerge from that case. Um, but in the end, in, in that kind of moment, the, the Constitution becomes a reflection of, of what, and in this instance, very importantly, crucially, who the framers and wider society recognized at the moment of founding. So those kind of attitudes, those kind of contextual uh, um, pressures, the, the, the location of the Constitution as a text within that moment becomes kind of crucial to understanding the text and, and applying it. And so in that kind of final moment, we get the kind of, the, the the process by which that kind of spirit is is moved into and becomes kind of informative of the way we think about the constitution legally itself. I do have one uh, follow-up question. What's going on with you next? Are there any projects you can disclose to our listeners? Thank you. Yeah, so I have kind of two projects uh, now following up on this one. Um, as I kind of studied the 
the response of defenders of slavery in Virginia in, in that kind of period in the early 1830s, one thing I became very interested in is, is the way they kind of articulate a defense of democracy um, from the threat of, of individual uh, enslaved persons who are kind of expressing their desire for liberty, who want to be taken seriously as citizens and, and have a kind of the identity. And I think it's indicative of a, a, an interesting way in which conservative thought in the 19th century in the United States conceives of the relationship between the individual and democracy. I think a lot of kind of approaches to that question have you know followed de Tocqueville in, in seeing the individual as kind of in need of protection from democracy, the kind of aristocratic, non-conformist faced with that kind of Jacksonian pressure of the, of the people en masse. What's interesting, I think, about in particular Thomas Jew's kind of discussion of that in that moment is he's really trying to protect democracy from the individual in the form of the slave. And so from there, I kind of, um, this next project is, is trying to think about how different thinkers at different moments maybe conceived that relationship and thought about the threat of the individual. And I'm particularly interested in William Graham Sumner at the end of the 19th century and um, Grover Kerr at the, you know, the early stages of a long 19th century, how they were also kind of dealing with that problem in different ways. The other project is is, is a more contemporary project and, and thinking about how um, the constitution as a kind of um, uh, a set of obligations on us is, is maybe um, increasingly becoming a problem for, for democratic government in the United States, but also in the face of climate change and the kind of global crises we face is, is also becoming a kind of a problem for the world at large. I hope you remember uh, New Books in History and the New Books Network for both those projects. And I also like to thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. It's been a a pleasure to be here and and, and talk with you. So the book is The Antebellum Origins of the Modern Constitution, Slavery and the Spirit of the American Founding by Professor Simon Gilhooley, published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. I'm your host, Ryan Tripp. This has been a production of New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.